Welcome to Tell Us a Story, the podcast dedicated to the stories that connect us through our shared life experiences, as well as the stories that reveal the sometimes stark differences. Only by truly listening to one another can we bridge the gaps that divide us, thereby fostering empathy, respect, and kindness with one another. In this episode, we hear from Athar Rafiq. He shares the sometimes hidden costs borne by those who choose to immigrate to a new country, as well as those forced to flee their home country, becoming refugees. My earliest memory of coming to the U.S. was probably spring of 1967, about 56 years ago. And I started in, I was in, the reason I remember it was spring because I was enrolled in the last three months of my uh, middle school. I came in and was enrolled in seventh grade. And so we, our story would be similar to many other immigrants and refugees, especially because you arrive in a foreign country. um, We were fortunate enough that we spoke the language. That was totally due to my dad's sacrifice earlier when we were in Africa. And um, he insisted that we go to a Catholic school there so that we would be fluent in English. But here, arriving 56 years ago, um, one of the speakers I was listening to, I think a professor from uh, one of the colleges, he says, you know, the days are long and the years fly by, is that our journey is perhaps long and arduous, but similar to what a lot of other refugees go through. And um, my parents, they were employees of the Pakistani Foreign Service. As in, my dad was an administrative assistant, basically clerical position, speechwriter, etc. But um, in 1971, then he was transferred to Turkey, and we all moved to Turkey. And that's when um, we realized I could not go to the university in Ankara, Turkey. He had to send me back for, my, uh, for me to continue college here. I wanted to study mechanical engineering, so he wrote a letter to my high school drafting teacher, Mr. Sidney Goldman, and um, asked if he could help. And Mr. Goldman um, took me in. I didn't have a place to live, and um, so here's my high school Jewish, I should emphasize, Jewish high school teacher, giving me a place to live in his house. Um, and then a few months later, my dad had enough money collected to send my younger brother back to the States uh, because he felt that um, I was here all alone and I was quite miserable and my younger brother would at least help um, me settle down. So there are two of us here. I was probably at that point 17 and my younger brother was 15. Mr. Goldman couldn't keep us for a long time so we then moved out of his place to another location but and I would have to work um, generally the night shifts. Um, my dad had suggested that I work in restaurants, so I would get at least two meals. I would get a meal before I started and get a meal before I left, and that way I didn't have to buy food. We never realized when I left Turkey at that point that I would never really go back to Pakistan where I was born for a very long, long time. And then in the mid-70s, or 1974 to be exact, 
I received a call from my dad who had just arrived at JFK and he said, I'm taking a cab. What is your address and do you have money for the taxi? He had traveled from Ankara, Turkey to Frankfurt, Germany with my mom and my youngest brother by bus because they did not have enough money to fly from Ankara. And of course, my dad was unemployed, mom was unemployed, I was working, but not enough. My mom and dad had grown up in India, so they, this was their second time being refugees. They had gotten married, um, you know, and like every young married couple, they had a lot of things they were looking forward to doing. And then um, India got independence and um, they were forced to migrate from where they had grown up and gotten married to Pakistan, Karachi, Pakistan. The reason he came back to the U.S. in 1974 is that he was had been in Turkey for three years and he had been in the United States for three years before that. And the rule was that after you had done two simultaneous uh, postings, as they're called, abroad missions, that you would come back to Pakistan for a year or two. So his friend had telegrammed him while he was in Turkey that I just saw your transfer papers and um, since you're an Indian immigrant, you'll be forced to resign or retire and you'll lose your international passport. So you might want to just go to the U.S. and apply for residency there because once he goes back to Pakistan, there's no way he would be able to travel at all and we would be stuck here in the U.S., in a, and we would not be able to travel to see him either. You know, it sounds fairly simplistic that, okay, he made a choice to not go back. But the irony of it is that when he left India, he left his parents behind and his siblings. And with the money that he was making in Pakistan, he was supporting, you know, his wife and me. Um, so he was also trying to save enough money to get his whole family moved to Pakistan, uh, to Pakistan from India, which they did. But, you know, he lost the extended family. We all grew up in these communities and tribes where you have uncles and aunts that go back hundreds and hundreds of years. And that community was lost, so they thought they would rebuild it in Pakistan. And then when he started working for the Foreign Service, he felt, okay, the money's good, but I'm home every three years, and I get to see my parents and my siblings. Um, in 74, he faced a very hard choice. He had to come either to the U.S. and, you know, be with his children, which meant giving up all his extended family back in Pakistan. He already was very sad about his life in India that he had given up as a child, and so there's this big sort of hole in your heart where you're longing for something and you just are never able to experience that. Um, it's hard to explain sometimes, but what happens sometimes, you, I have that happen when I smell sometimes a diesel engine, smoke from a diesel engine. It takes me back to this bus stop in Karachi because, you know, the buses used to be smelling of this diesel fume. And so I think back, I said, okay, that's how my dad felt about some of the things that he talked about. And so when he came in 74, he had sort of made that decision that he would have to uh, give up that second um, attempt, of, you know, of 
trying to create a family and all back again. And so we were back here again as a nuclear family. And in the 70s in New York, there were not a lot of people from India, Pakistan. So it was just no Indian Pakistani community that you could fit into. Right now and today, I see that with Afghani refugees as well. You know, if we are able to communicate in Urdu or Pashto or Dari, you know, you suddenly see these faces light up. We're like, oh my God, do you speak that? Um, so we pay, we, we as immigrants and refugees, we pay a massive price on an emotional, intellectual level. Um, and just a couple of days ago, I was talking to my brother. I said, I was telling him, you know, dad was fairly laid back. What made us become such, you know, crazy workaholics to try and get everywhere? And I think because we were, had no place to live and we were so, so um, suddenly thrown into this atmosphere, no food, no place to live, that it really sort of was a very scary place. And so you never want to go back there and you work really, really hard to get out of there. And then you're constantly trying to prove to somebody else that, and yourself that you know, you're better, you can make it happen. And striving for that perfection on one side and then trying to cover up all this uh, turmoil of longing um, for certain things makes it a very challenging place to live. As much as we're grateful and sort of patriotic about the American dream, it has its uh, gaps for us. You know, sometimes when we travel abroad and we hear the call to prayer, it's just breathtaking for us. Um, those are the things we, we will always miss. And yes, we can travel somewhere and get that, or we can go to you know, some of the bigger cities and get our local food, but it's not the same as it was your native town where you know, you've been there or your family's been there for generations. Once in a while, and uh, I make yogurt at home, and I just thought to share this, is that when I make the yogurt, once in a while it turns out, and just the taste of that, I find I'm going back to the fellow who would normally sell yogurt in those days, of course, this is 50 years ago, would be riding a bike with a clay pot in the back, and the yogurt would be would have been set for a day or two in that clay pot and he would serve that out. So it was that kind of little thing that you could just buy a small serving of yogurt from the bicycle vendor. My mom, once in a while, would, uh, you know, we used to have make flatbread for dinner all the time. And on special meals, she would still make the flour, knead the flour, and that she would send me to the local tandoor. And I would carry the flour to the tandoor and that fellow would make the bread as naans instead of flatbread. And he would keep a little bit of the kneaded flour as payment. And I miss that bartering. And then that, just that smell of running home with that hot naan to make sure I got in back there in time so that it was still hot. And I, I, I miss the courtyard. We used to sort of sometimes sit in 
because of the tropical climate, sometimes in the evenings you would just hose down the courtyard and the summer heat would just cool from that evaporating water and you would sit and sleep outside under the stars, literally. 20 years ago, we went back to Pakistan and I visited my uh, distant relatives in Koita. Um, but now we could no longer sleep on the roof. We're just not accustomed to it. Um, as a children, we would all climb up to the roof in the summer and sleep on the roof and, you know, watch the stars. But uh, those are some of the things. The day-to-day routine, mainly the call to prayer and this ability to just speak your language on a day-to-day basis, your native language. Um, I'm a native English speaker, but still sometimes you long for that. <laughs> um, but we're happy, right? <laughs> so we don't start all over again. I think one of the things I did want to talk about is that there's this massive deficit in belongings. I have no childhood friends, you know, from kindergarten. I have no books or belongings that I had when I was in elementary school or high school or anything like that. I mean, we have some pictures, um, but that would be about it. And I'm comfortable with, of course, I'm very comfortable with where we're living and what I'm doing. Um, and I would not fit anywhere else. I mean, I my so when my dad was here for about 20 years in the 90s, he decided he was going to move back to Pakistan. He just felt so bad. And so he decided he would move back to Karachi, Pakistan, where his brothers were living. He sold everything, and um, meaning like he sold his furniture, his house, and uh, packed up everything and moved back to Pakistan. You know, in less than a year, he was back. Um, and it was very sad because home was no longer home. It had changed. And um, he didn't fit in anymore. He was now an American. And he was an outsider and he was treated that way. And so this is the, this is the story of the refugees and uh, the immigrants. Sometimes we don't realize we're not here by choice. Um, very few of us are here by choice. We're here, yes, because of the opportunities and higher quality of life for sure. Um, but there's a significant price to pay for that. And not that we're minding the price, but I think once, once in a while we should, uh, when we're on the other side as locals, we should understand that that refugee that's out there or that immigrant that's out there, they've left a lot behind. Um, I have a fellow who sometimes will help here in the uh, yard. His, um, and he says he misses his mom and he's been here 20 some odd years and he still misses his mom. I mean, she's alive, thank God, and he talks to her, but, you know, can you imagine? He just wants to see his mom, and he can't. Um, so that's where I was going. My dad's parents passed away, and um, he wasn't able to see them. I was not able to get to know them as grandparents or um, anything like that. Um, and so I tell my students sometimes, I said, you know, if you have grandparents who are still alive, spend time with them. It's very important for us to have that oral history that goes back generations. And it's important, even if they're repeating their stories, for you to know those stories so that you can carry that oral history forward. I don't think sometimes we give enough importance to these oral histories that, you know, we've um, grown up with. 
I don't know if I could speak for all immigrants, but I can say definitely for myself, my parents and my in-laws, um, we were clearly and are clinically sort of depressed from this loss that we've encountered. We are in perpetual grieving for that loss. And, you know, certainly we all took medications. I still take medications for that. But that um, grieving process never really ends. You make some sort of a, uh, I don't want to say you make peace with it. You kind of make a deal that, okay, I will let you in and, you know, um, we'll commiserate for an hour a day or something like that. And then I have to put you aside and we'll move on with life. So there is that emotional um, grief that continues forever, I think. My dad was forever grieving. He never really lost that or able to make peace with it. And as he got older, um, as I'm getting older now, I'm, uh, I'm turn I just turned 69 some time ago, I feel what he was feeling that I didn't understand earlier is that somehow you wish it would be a little bit easier to go back and forth between the cultures. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we went to Toronto for just a few days. We drove up and drove back. And, you know, we had a blast in Toronto because there are some neighborhoods in Toronto you would swear you were back in Southeast Asia. <laughs> you know, people are speaking the language and the food and all. It's, it's a nice stopgap, but uh, we're always mourning that loss. And um, I think that's just the way it has to be. I don't think there's any way we can fix it. <laughs> I'm very, very uh, grateful that the American society's strength is this ability to incorporate and um, uh, and, and uh, welcome immigrants and refugees, not necessarily always with open arms, but the average American definitely op welcomes refugees and immigrants with open arms. And that is something I experienced in many different towns wherever I went. Even afterwards, when I was working, I was able to find people that welcomed me, no matter which city I was in. It's more important for the refugees to build relationships. And what I tell a lot of times to our friends is, don't go and hang out with your own communities, people from back home, because then you're really creating a problem for the average American not to get to know you. You look like you're an outsider and you behave like an outsider. Um, so, and that feeds into the broader sense of these are outsiders, they'll never fit in because we kind of feed that. Wherever we go, we want to move to a bigger city and then find a neighborhood where everybody speaks the same language, eats the same food, and we try to recreate that village from back home. Um, and that's why I do like the term melting pot in the sense that we do want to give the best of us and absorb the best of what our host country has to offer. It is perhaps the best country in the world for immigrants and refugees. I don't think any other country comes close to what the United States offers in terms of upward mobility. And not necessarily just economic upward mobility. I'm talking about being accepted. For example, we have friends who we meet every occasionally, and we meet like as if we've been known each other for, for you know, decades. Uh, even though we might have just met a few years ago. So I think 
you know, in that sense, certainly we are home. This is our home, and we feel at home. And it's 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 been wonderful for our children, and uh, certainly uh, we want to continue that legacy of giving back that other people gave to us. Thank you for listening to Tell Us a Story. We hope this episode will encourage you to have a conversation with an immigrant or refugee in your community to learn more about their story and the challenges they face and how those challenges may be similar or different from your own. Please review the show notes for more information about this podcast or visit us at tellusastory.info.